Welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. Today, we're taking a step a bit further beyond the Brussels bubble, but still remaining somewhat EU-focused. We're taking a look at Africa, and not Africa as a whole, but mainly some of its parts that went through some of their undemocratic woes, or as some of us more academics would call it, their coups that we saw. As you may have been aware from your many, many news stories we saw over the summer and early in early fall, Africa underwent a number of coups, and these exposed some troubling trends and some even more worrying implications for the European Union. And to help me, you know, make sense of all this turmoil, I'm joined by two pretty knowledgeable guests on this subject. Wouldn't you agree, Ricardo and Kausar? Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So before we get into this, um, I mean, I think this will be the last podcast I record for this season. So do you think that this is a, a good topic to wrap up on for the year? Um, I think it's a heavy topic, <laughs> I would say, but a very good one for Same. sure uh, to get an idea of the situation also more globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I do think that there's this attitude a lot of times in the Brussels bubble that, you know, Europe is the be-all, end-all. And I know projects like the Global Gateway have kind of expanded the scope that we have around us. But I think what I hope people take away from this podcast or this episode, sorry, is kind of how what happened in Africa can impact our own, you know, internal focuses here. But yeah, before we, you know, delve too deeply into the academic side, you guys need to introduce yourselves. I'm right. Simon. I'm your host. Kausar, do you want to start? Who are you? What do you yes. do in life? Um, of course. So my name is Kausar Lanani. I'm working right now as a policy officer in the Peace, Security and Governance team at ECDPM, Center for Europe-Africa Relations. I've been working there for two years and uh, my focus is mainly violent extremism, radicalization, but I touch upon all kind of issues related to peace, security, but also governance. Um, right now, my focus has been mainly on the Sahel and West Africa due to uh, the events that happened in the past year. So, yeah, that has been uh, my focus for now. Yes, and you wrote an excellent article a little while back that uh, we're sure to link below, mm-hmm. as well as perhaps a certain link to another audio production. Yes, indeed. Thank you for (laughs) the promotion. Um, Yes, I wrote uh, an article on Niger and on the impacts of the coup in Niger that we will discuss uh, more broadly in the upcoming episode um, and the EU engagement in the whole region in the Sahel. And I also recently recorded a podcast on uh, gender expertise that I will invite everyone to go check out. Yes, and see those below. (laughs) And I mean, last, but definitely not least, right, Ricardo? <laughs> sure. you got to follow this up now. <laughs> right. Who are you, Ricardo? What it's do you do in life? It's going to be difficult to beat this one. Um, so, yeah, I'm Ricardo. I'm, um, I work at Carnegie Europe. Carnegie Europe being a, a think tank, a global think tank based in a, a headquartered in Washington, D.C. Um, I work in the Democracy, Conflict and Governance program. Um, I should start by saying that uh, I, in no way I'm here representing Carnegie. It's just literally on a personal and likewise classic. with Kausar mm-hmm. and myself as well but sorry right. and um, and I also should say that uh, I'm not quite a EU sort of Africa specialist I mean we work primarily on the democracy democracy support um, and uh, I mean in the past I worked a bit more on democracy I was at the European Institute for Security Studies supporting the Africa Department and also at the Portuguese Ministry of Foreign Affairs also in the Africa Department but as I said I mean 
I'm uh, these days I'm covering mostly like democracy related content. We thought that it would be interesting this year to focus on coups in Africa, but also beyond, because as already Kozer said, I mean it's been a big thing over the past few years, and uh, we thought that uh, it would be interesting for the democracy community also to think about how the EU is responding to coups in many different shapes and forms. Yeah. Well, I think that brings up an interesting another interesting paradigm to this whole conversation we're having, where. The conversation when we think about the coups in Africa, we think of it as an Africa issue. But maybe, is it really a democracy issue? We'll look into that later, too, <laughs> as we go on. Um, and finally, Ricardo, you are also have things to plug, right? Uh, <laughs> however do you mean? <laughs> well, you recently also were offering yeah, yeah. a certain thing. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I mean, we recently, I suppose you are referring to the article. Uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, at Carnegie, we have run this um, uh, initiative with, uh, I mean, my boss is called Richard Youngs. I mean, he works a lot on democracy support. And uh, we've, we we run this initiative with European Partnership for Democracy, which is called the European Democracy Hub. And recently, we published an article on um, EU's responses to coups. I mean, there were many authors there, including myself and also uh, a colleague from ECDPM, actually. Um, and yeah, so I, th I suppose that's, that's why I was invited to come here today. Uh, no, you're just a great guest to have on. And as we sure. said, we found you on the street, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, well, speaking of things that we don't find on the street, the EU-Africa relationship. Yeah. Where is this thing today? What do we make of it? Because the way we want to kind of approach this big topic, I'm going to give you a bit of an overview. We want to start by looking a bit at what the EU-Africa relationship was, what happened during the summer and the fall, and where it will be. So, Kalsar, kick us off with the million-dollar question. <laughs> what was the EU-Africa relationship? Where is it standing? Why, why is it geopolitically important? Um, a very important question, I think, to, to start. I, before starting, I just want also to say that all the views are my own um, that I'm going to talk about today, but also in my article and that I'm not uh, representing my institution. Um, so to start on this big question, um, I would say that if we look precisely at the Sahel and West Africa, where a lot of the coups have been happening, if we look at the EU-Africa relation in that, we see that it has been uh, very often more the, the France-Africa relation rather than the EU-Africa relations. And it has been a problem uh, for the EU. Um, so what we have seen is that France is actually the biggest uh, partner and has been also the leader for the EU as a partner to work with those countries. And the EU has also been uh, relying a lot on France and its uh, ability to, to mobilize resources, uh, manpower, uh, missions in the region. So for a long time, we had an EU who was mostly, I would say, following uh, France's approach to the Sahel and West Africa. Because, yes, uh, you, you kicked it off by saying Africa, but uh, I think we also have to narrow it down. And um, for, for what we're talking about today, it will be mostly Sahel and West Africa. So, yeah, just wanted to precise that. Yeah, and I thought this was such an interesting almost caveat of how it's, when we talk about EU-Africa relations, it's mainly following what the French are doing. And again, that relates to, you know, Brexit, for instance, where the British used to be a huge player in these regions, and now they just aren't anymore for obvious reasons. On this note, we're looking at the EU-Africa relationship in this sense. Why does Europe care about what happens in Sahel and Africa? What's at stake there? Is this something that you have a, you're willing to take a shot at, Ricardo? But on that one, I think I'll leave it to to Kalsar, actually. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think she raised a good point on um, EU countries delegating responsibility to France. 
in fact, sometimes there's um, quite some focus on these discussions on, you know, France, but it's it should also be noted uh, or should also be emphasized that, I mean, many countries, you can blame the French however you want, but for, for a long, the responsibility was delegated to, to, to the French. So, so in this regard, I think um, it's also can come across a bit as unfair sometimes because, I mean, if we are 27 or 28 or 30 countries um, and, and if one has sort of the lead in the decisions, I mean, that you should also perhaps rethink whether how to approach a, a region in this regard. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so maybe to, to add on a bit on that, um, what are the EU aspirations in Africa? Uh, for, for me, there are three points that are very important, and I will talk about interest because that's what is important, I think, when we talk about politics or geopolitics. Uh, the first one is economic interests. There are a lot of resources uh, in the regions, uranium, gold, uh, different kind of mineral resources, uh, natural resources. So, of course, that's a big interest for EU member states individually. Mm. Um, so we have to consider that, first of all, economic interests, but also economic partnership. And then we have the security reasons, which have been at the forefront of all the the strategies and initiatives by the EU in the last decades in France. So the biggest security concern is, of course, the the jihadi expansion in the Sahel, violent extremism. So that's the second reason why the EU should look at it, because it also has a lot of, uh, unfortunately, potential to export, which is why there has been continuous efforts on on that um, on that topic. And then the last one, which I think is the most discussed in Europe, is migration and why EU is looking at Africa and how to contain migration and how to regulate migration. So um, those are the three points, economic interest, uh, security reasons and migration, which are the three biggest points why the EU is looking at the continent and particularly Sahel and West Africa. I think the latter point, I think, is especially I guess, salient here in the Brussels bubble with the EU elections coming up and migration being, I guess, the biggest theme that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just I, I think it's very important to mention that it is because also it's at the same time an international and a national issue. Right. Because it, we have also in Europe a lot of African diasporas. And uh, migration touch upon both and impacts both because when something happens at the national level, it will very often reflect on the international foreign policies of the countries. Right. Maybe you can also step in on, on, on how we arrived here, basically that's also why why we are here today on this, you know, discussing coups issues. I mean, let's also say that the EU-Africa relations over the past years, over the past you know, recent years, have had also quite a few struggles. I mean, we've had COVID, we've had Ukraine, now we have the whole Israel, Hamas issue. I mean, Africa is used a lot rhetorically as a top policy priority, but I'm not sure exactly whether, you know, from, from the EU leadership, we prioritize Africa that much, which is actually something in common, perhaps with the, with, with, with the democracy community and democracy support, which is something that the, the EU leadership refers to a lot figuratively and rhetoric, uh, rhetorically. But uh, when it comes to, you know, actually investment, for instance, um, I would be curious to see whether both categories perform as, you know, rank as first in top policy priorities. I want to make a quick point, you know, injecting my own perspective in it. But I, I would argue it's somewhat of a priority African issues for the European leadership, because quite literally, if you look where else would they gain influence in the world? Africa is the last, you know, near remaining continent or group of countries where there is influence to be won still. 
Um, and I think that's a very unique place where partnerships can still be built that doesn't exist in the rest of the geopolitical landscape around the world. So in that sense, it's very important if Europe is, you know, to strengthen its position geopolitically against actors like China, you know, America to some extent, other, you know, I guess Russia even. Um, they, they need to, you know, create these partnerships with regions who haven't been caught up yet. Yeah, and a quick point maybe on this that we haven't mentioned yet, but when we look at EU-Africa relations and uh, specifically France-Africa relations, the, the big issue there is uh, the behavior that has been going on. And I think that's a big issue that we also have to talk about and is also linked to, to what you just said. But there has been um, an attitude of uh, patronizing mm -hmm. or paternalist uh, attitude that has been really voiced a lot on the African side that has been denounced. And more and more, a lot of uh, African countries and Sahelian countries, and we'll talk about it with the coups, uh, have been rejecting EU presence or France presence um, in their countries. So, yeah, this is a big question on, on the future, what uh, a lot of people here in the Brussels bubble have been calling, what is the future of the uh, EU-Africa partnership and where are we going on this? Because there's a lot of grievances, uh, historical one particularly, that haven't been addressed and that without addressing those, it's very difficult to go forward and advance in this partnership. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, I guess, as both of you are trying to do it, that, that segues really nicely into the coup's discussion. Um, well, it first popped up on my timeline, I think around the summer, when I have a colleague who used to work in EAS on the Africa region, he was, you know, telling me, oh, half my colleagues who work, who are living in, in the Sahel region are being evacuated all of a sudden. And yeah. then it only kept escalating, escalating, and then it died off suddenly in mid-September. Yeah. So uh, what did I miss here? What happened? <laughs> yes. Um, so to give a brief overview, over the past three years, as he mentioned, there has been in the whole continent, there has been nine coups mm -hmm. and 14 coup attempts. Um, and actually, there has been a talk of uh, this epidemic of coups going on in, uh, in the continent, and especially yeah, in West Africa and the Sahel. We had many countries that had coups and also what they called a coup within a coup um, in certain countries. Um, so a lot of coups took place. Uh, we can talk about Niger, Gabon, Guinea, uh, Mali, Burkina Faso. And we also had one after the other. And that's also why we talked about this epidemic of coup. Personally, I think that from the European side, we have this tendency of, of course, seeing coups as unconstitutional change of governments, but uh, seeing them in a very negative lens, uh, whereas we, we put this judgment of value or moral judgment on them. But to really understand why the coups are happening, I think, is more important and more key, and why in certain countries we see that, because most of those countries are really young countries uh, that are also building themselves um, and a lot of times when coup happened, there are really important grievances for, for the people that we have grievances around access to water, health care, food, mm. uh, jobs. So we have to understand why those are taking place and why also there is the space for them to take place. And last point for me that is important when we consider coup is how much people are supporting them, because 
what has been a lot we have seen and that has been denounced is that the EU and particularly France had this double uh, standard regarding coups, where it supported coups in co certain countries like Guinea or Gabon, and then really uh, harshly sanctioned or condemned other coups like in Niger. Mm. So there has been this kind of incoherence uh, from uh, the EU member states side and also within, of course, because the EU is not, uh, of course, one entity, it's 27 countries, very different uh, positions. There has been also um, a consideration of why there has been some different opinions and how to reconcile all of them. So yeah, over the summer, a lot of coup happens, <laughs> a lot of coups um, in all those countries, um, and there has been very different responses. Yeah, so, so speaking about these experiences that you're, you're listing there and how the historical almost feelings behind the EU-Africa relationship have been building, I think the Niger example, as we were hinting towards, is a great starting off point for this discussion or a, a great deep dive point for this discussion because, I, I mean, as people might have heard me plug uh, pretty long in the beginning, is your piece that you wrote on a Kausar. So could you maybe dive a bit deeper into the, this whole tension focusing on the, on the Niger example? Yeah, of course. Um, I think just before we can give a bit of context on why Niger is so uh, important and was so surprising from the EU side and was so shocking, but from the Niger population side wasn't that much. And that's what also I dive in into, into the piece. Uh, because there has been a lot of coups. We have seen Mali, we have seen Burkina uh, before Niger. Uh, but when the coup this summer happened in Niger, it was really shocking for the international community and mostly Western partners. Why? Because for the US and the EU, uh, Niger was even called by uh, Antony Blinken the last bastion of democracy. It was also a very close ally uh, on security for EU countries, for the US, um, and there had been a lot of exchanges with former President Bazoum. So it, has, it was very shocking for a lot of European countries to see that there was a coup because uh, a lot of them saw that Bazoum was democratically elected. However, if you look at the situation in the country, what do we see? We see that there was allegation of fraud and at time violent protest during the 2020-2021 election process. We see that a lot of uh, people in Niger were uh, voicing their concerns regarding the government of Bazoum. An Afrobarometer survey actually found that 52% of people in Niger believed that the country was headed in the wrong direction. Um, and 69% of them actually agreed with the statement saying it is illegitimate for the armed forces to take control of government when elected leaders abuse power for their own ends. Not a great sign. Exactly. Like, yeah. And the question that we ask ourselves is that why would the EU be surprised? <laughs> Mm. Why the U.S. be surprised when the population is clearly uh, facing a lot of challenges under that government? So we see that there is like this kind of disconnect between the perception that can the international community can have and uh, the population can have. I think that goes really well back to your earlier point of the patronism, or not the patronism, the, the, pa the patronizing attitudes mm -hmm. that a lot of people yeah. had where... I've always, and I'm no Africa expert, but a lot of times when we see us talking about Africa, we're like, oh, this continent adopted democracy? Check mark. They're done. They're good for the future. Nothing else to be done. And I think this kind of shows that. It's, it's a really, I guess, healthy nurturing of democracy that really allows countries to, to prosper, right? 
Yeah, exactly. I think yeah. you're totally right. But it also puts into question why are we not uh, looking more closely at what democracy means in those countries? Mm. Why are we just uh, uh, happy enough when we see there are elections, but when we see that there are allegations of fraud and, and issues, as we do in our own countries in Europe, where we are very strict with uh, democracy, we are not that right. much with other countries. And that's where we see that the EU has an interest-based policy and approach to those countries. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that it should also uh, frame itself in that way and not only frame itself as a normative power as the EU self-described. Right, because it's an interesting juxtaposition there between kind of the attitude that the EU projects when it wants to go abroad. Because amongst mm -hmm. the other free powers or big powers, you know, big as EU and big, but between China, the US, and the EU, the EU has this normative values-based approach, whereas America's interest-based, China is definitely interest-based, but we pretend to be a bit more. And are, can we really be that bit more? Yeah. Not, yeah, exactly. I think that's a big issue right now, and I'm, I'm going to dive a bit into it, and then I want to come back also on the coup in Niger. Yeah. But uh, on that point, I think it's a very relevant point because... Uh, what we see is that there is a crisis for the EU regarding that, that big debate, uh, norms versus interests. Um, and I think that uh, right now in a lot of uh, Sahelian and West African countries, a lot of them are denouncing that hypocrisy of saying you are acting on interests, but you are communicating and framing yourself as you are defending values, which are democracy and human rights. And also, we have to take into account that a lot of Africans also are aware of what's happening globally. And with what's happened recently in Gaza, a lot of African countries and population have been saying that Europe is losing a lot of credibility when they're talking about defending human rights and democracy when they look at other conflicts. So I think that's a point that for sure we have to mention. Ricardo, does that align with your thinking? Um, yeah, I mean, surely. I mean, the, the U.S. has been under attack when it comes to double standards. I mean, you see, for instance, when it comes to the coup's response, certainly, I mean, the U.S. response has been more assertive towards, say, Niger than, say, Chad, for instance, where <laughs> basically, I mean, the former general president dies, the sun takes over, and, I mean, it seems to be business as usual with Borrell and Macron going to the country. Um, I mean, in the case of Gabon, it's pretty much the same. So, yeah, indeed, I mean, the USB, I mean, in the spotlight when it comes to double standards. But yeah, I think that's a great intervention. And I think there's some great, you know, add some more color to the picture that mm -hmm. you've been painting here, Kautzar, about just the double standards. And, you know, I don't want to leave the double standard of not finishing about talking about Niger. So tell us, enlighten us right. what happened in this coup. Yeah, so um, I'm going to give a, a brief uh, picture so then we can uh, talk more broadly about what Ricardo also mentioned. Uh, so basically, when the coup happened, we had France, who uh, very strongly supported an ECOWAS military intervention, ECOWAS being the regional uh, organization uh, in West Africa. And at the same time, we had European countries, other European countries, such as Italy or Germany, that were way more um, reluctant to have that military intervention. So the first reaction we saw is also uh, a reaction where there was no coherence. Uh, within European member states. But uh, the first reaction was also to have very strict sanctions, notably on, on visa or mobility, 
uh, economic sanctions, uh, stopping uh, aid toward the countries. So it was a very strong reaction and maybe the clearest and firmest reaction regarding a coup that the EU member states did since the beginning of, mm. of the coups in the region. And on we also had the US, so US uh, a very strong partner of Niger, and as I said earlier, uh, Blinken saying it's last bastion of democracy in the region. The U.S. actually took a very long time before defining what happened as a coup because of the legal implication that it would have. And uh, not even a week after the, the junta decided to ask the withdrawal of all the French troops in Niger, the French and the Americans were the most present in the country. And the Americans actually didn't withdraw throw their troops, they just relocated uh, in Agadez in the north of the of the country and decided to have a very different approach uh, than France. And I think for, for France, seeing that was also uh, very heartbreaking, if I can use those terms, and, and lived a bit like a, a humiliation or um, not a lot of solidarity from uh, its Western partners. So there was an isolation uh, of France a bit. The US decide, decided to take this very clear path of continuing more the relationship with Niger. Other EU member states that I think France was anticipating more support of, like Germany and Italy, really voiced their support for a more diplomatic solution rather than a military intervention. Um, so we see that France was quite isolated, and it also culminated in uh, when the, the junta decided to ask France to withdraw also its ambassador. Mm. So we have had also very, uh, a lot of developments in the past week where we have seen from the beginning that the Niger uh, junta was uh, a lot against uh, France and the French troops. But actually in the past week, we have also seen that the junta decided to suspend all the EU uh, CSDP missions, so civil military missions. So that's actually a very strong, uh, very strong stance and also strong message that is sent to not only France, but also to the EU as a whole, suspending those missions. So, so in the end of the day, just quickly, what are the impacts of this? Of that for EU, for France? The, the impact is that, uh, you know, you were saying that uh, before you, you started by saying, oh, but maybe Africa is one of the few places today in, in the globe that the EU uh, can still have great impact or a lot of impact. And that's the, the issue. What we see today <laughs> with the the reaction from the military government in Mali, Burkina, and Niger, I'm talking about the three because they decided to create an alliance this summer, the Liptika-Gorma alliance that was strengthened. Nice name. Yeah, it's, a, it's the region actually that is um, in the border of the three countries, uh, Liptika-Gorma. Um, but they decided to strengthen that uh, Sahel state alliance, making it not only a security alliance, but also uh, economic and political and defense alliance, which is now going to position itself as a kind of a, um, a rivalry with ECOWAS mm -hmm. that, uh, that was already existing. And the three countries also now uh, officially decided to withdraw from the G5 Sahel joint force. So uh, the two countries left, Mauritania and Chad, uh, decided and are planning to completely dissolve the G5 Sahel because now we really have this kind of uh, three countries, Mali, Niger, Burkina, and then we have 
ECOWAS on uh, on the other side, and they're really strengthening their cooperation. But it means not good news for the EU, not good news for France, and it really means that the EU needs to uh, rethink its strategy, rethink its position, and uh, reassess its position and um, cooperation with uh, the African countries. Well, I've heard that same language coming from this side of the table, Ricardo. (laughs) No, I wanted to say on on, on these whole sort of interests, uh, values, approach to coups and how the EU should go about these affairs. I mean, I think the question is that the EU wants to become, and this is the whole rhetoric of the past few years, the EU wants to become a global geopolitical actor and a global security actor. And therefore, the EU is sort of thinking, how do we engage with these countries if we feel a lot of backlash, for instance? I mean, you see it with, with regard to coups. Um, I mean, the EU responded more assertively when there, when there was tensions, active tensions with France, for instance. So you really see that countries that... Um, I mean, like uh, Niger, for instance, where there was used backlash, or Mali. These were the countries where the EU was quite assertive in its response. And, and, and the whole thing about, you know, whether interests or values or... I think you really see, as Kauser was saying, I mean, there's some countries that want to be more pragmatic these days, adopting diplomatic solutions. But the question is that, is what does the EU want to be? The EU, as a global geopolitical actor, will only be pragmatic. Uh, is this not a bit dissatisfying to the European project and also a sort of, you know, normative power, for instance? Because the EU these days wants to fight for uh, more partnerships, particularly security partnerships. In the whole rhetoric is that we are living in a multipolar world. There's a multi-crisis, and therefore we have to reach out to different partners. So how do we guarantee that? Uh, should we just shy away from our, you know, values and, and promoting democratic? rights and uh, p- p- pushing for conditionalities. I think a g- good example he- here is on the Samoa agreement that you just uh, had uh, a, c- a couple of weeks ago, where basically out of 79 countries, 35 uh, did not sign, and you need two-thirds so that uh, uh, the, the thing goes forward. And, I mean, it will pre- provisionally be on s- starting in January because there apparently there are some countries there uh, that had some questions about, you know, LGBT rights and, 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 and things like that. So the the EU really needs to rethink if it wants to be a sort of realpolitik actor where basically uh, engages with everybody only pragmatically and forgets its origins, or the EU actually says, well, hang on a minute, these are our interests and we will not show away from them. Yeah. And this is, this is and, and, and I mean, circling back to the issue of coups, I think this is what you see there, and that's also why there's a lot of discussion on double standards. I mean, for instance, when it comes to Chad, why is it there so many people say that the EU was not consistent? Well, because the EU, even though you go and you read all the statements by Borrell, for instance, then the EU clearly understood that there was lack of democratization, lack of human rights, uh, lack of everything related to values, but the EU did not shy away from saying, well, I mean, these are our security partner. Let's just wait for the transition to be adopted and see how things go. In fact, uh, Borrell has this quite interesting expression where he says, um, the EU adopted a strategic uh, patience approach. And often this meant, well, let's just see what happens. So there is a coup, there is a transition charter, the, the regional actors, namely ECOWAS, uh, negotiates with you know, the countries, and then the EU waits and see to see whether you know, the promises will be I mean, materialized. And oftentimes they just realize that junta leaders thus far did not really care too much about democratic interests. Recently, I mean, I'm, as I say, uh, in Burkina, for instance, uh, and in Chad, and promises to held elections have, have been postponed. In Chad, for instance, the, the German ambassador 
ambassador was basically asked to leave after comments on post-holding uh, uh, elections. Uh, and, and, and the EU lives in this uncomfortable position of having different standards for these countries. Yeah. And uh, can I also... Yeah, quickly, yeah. Yes. Uh, also, what is interesting about the schools discussion is that, and also circling back to what you said at the beginning, where you actually see the clear response uh, from the EU on coups is not in Africa. It's actually Myanmar. So in Myanmar, uh, uh, had the military coup in 2021. And then uh, the EU's response has been quite strong, actually. It's now on the sort of, I think it's on the eighth round of sanctions towards Myanmar. Um, it has been very assertive, not only rhetorically, but also in terms of actions. So the question is, uh, it's not quite fair to say that the EU cannot take strong actions towards coups. The question is whether the EU is interested in taking actions. Right. And there are some certain countries in Africa where you can see that certainly the EU considered that there's strategic interest and therefore we cannot really, you know, touch uh, on, 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 on some of the countries. I mean, Gabon, for instance, if, you know, there's French troops on the ground. Uh, this has been accused of a palace coup where basically things will probably remain sort of the same. And, and I'll leave it there. Sorry. Yeah, no, but super interesting point. I don't know if you want to pick up on that because I think you expose this really interesting juxtaposition to foreign policy in Africa. But sorry. Mm, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. And I just want to go back to one point you were saying when you were talking about the whole um, interest versus value uh, discourse, because for me, what we see is that uh, here, when we're in Brussels, uh, on the European side, we hear a lot, oh, the dilemma that we have is that we have to, to impose sanctions uh, on, on the, the junta and the military regime because then we're not coherent with our values. Uh, how can we support them? Uh, th that's the discourse. Like, how can we support a core? How can we even do just business with them? How, how can we use, and I think I really like the term you used, Ricardo, pragmatic. How can we pragmatic uh, with these uh, military leaders and these coup leaders when our values are democracy and human rights? Uh, it feels from Europe that there is like an incoherence there. And that's why that's how they justify why they don't want to um, interact with them. However, however, and I think that's the real problem is that at the global level, I'm not even talking about the local or regional, at the global level, this incoherency already exists. And you were talking about Chad, exactly a really good example. What in its in its actions, the EU is doing an interest-based. Um, approach and strategy because exactly like they are supporting certain coups and not supporting others based on their interest and for me personally I, I don't think it's a bad thing I think a geopolitical actor has to act on its interest otherwise it's not politics you have to be honest about what you are doing and I think we have uh, in Europe, I think a lot of people have to be honest that uh, when we do politics, we talk about interest, we talk about strategy, and we can go so far uh, with, with values uh, in terms of actions. So I think the problem is that everyone else is seeing the incoherence of Europeans except Europeans themselves. So they have to face that first before justifying uh, something that they're already doing and that other countries and other people are already seeing. Yeah, and keeping an eye on the time, I'll let you quickly respond, Ricardo, if you wanted to. 
no, I mean, this is sort of a side comment to what uh, uh, Kauser was saying. I mean, the question is, um, there's some discussion also these days about, you know, whether African partners or other partners, the other geographies do not want to accept sort of, you know, conditions or uh, use values and saying, well, I mean, you are promoting these, but this is against sort of as if there's sort of a, an exceptionalism to liberal values in, in some countries. But the question is that there should also perhaps be a discussion on whether, um, as, as, as if things are phrased as if the U.S. done a lot and perhaps too much to, you know, to, 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 to support values and rights and so forth in, uh, in, in many different countries, particularly in Africa, where, when the question could also be, how about if the U.S. done too little to support rights and values and so forth, especially in Africa? I mean, for instance, when you go to democracy support uh, data, for instance, what it seems sort of, what it's becoming uh, sort of clear is that the EU perhaps did not do enough when it comes to strengthening civil society uh, in, say, Niger, or... I mean, there's different ways of engaging with the democracy community in different countries. I mean, the EU could certainly... Because there's a lot of discussion about how the EU could rethink its strategy toward Africa. And, I mean, there could be certain ways where the, the EU could be creative and engage, you know, different different approaches to this. And, no, I'll, yeah... Yeah, because I, th I think we're almost nearing the end of our allotted little time we had mm -hmm. here. And I just kind of wanted to toss around the table quickly for a quick few seconds of wrapping up your thoughts, but also keeping an eye out on the fact that we're, you know, the last podcast I'll be recording in 2023. As we move into 2024, how do you expect to see this issue develop and how do you want it to develop? What would be almost your recommendation, if anything? Yeah, um, yeah. I, I want to take this opportunity also to nuance a bit what I, I was saying earlier, and I think it's a good way also to wrapping up. I think for the EU, I think there's also um, a way and uh, uh, some light at the end of the tunnel, and they could actually, you know, shift their strategy in a good way and, and become an actor that is actually present in a healthy way. I think healthy is very important here with Africa and create a real partnership. But for that, there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. And I think some of them on the European side is, of course, breaking the double standard or clientelism, or at least be clear about their interest and why the EU is prioritizing certain countries or others. I think honesty can, can go also a long way and building trust can go also a long way. Also avoiding duplication in all the different initiatives or multiple agreements that create confusion, uh, developing more clear common position. Um, and on that, I just want to go back on Euro EU and, and France. And I think a lot of things that uh, the EU, like we, I've talked about how different member states like Germany and Italy uh, or even Denmark had different position regarding Niger than France. And I think the EU can also distance itself from France's position and become more of a leader uh, and uh, a strategic actor in the region. And it can be actually a very positive change um, in the region. But for that, the EU will have to take um, serious measures to apply it. And one quick example is that uh, what we have seen in a lot of EU delegations in African countries is that they would appoint French ambassadors in EU delegations in former French colonies. And I think that's a huge faux pas. Uh, I think that's uh, something that the EU should take more carefully because we see that when in former French colonies there are there is a French ambassador and when there is another uh, country's ambassador, European country's ambassador, the relations are very different. The whole relationship is very different. So I think, you know, there are things that the EU can do to be um, an actor that is more present. 
And um, I just want to mention also quickly uh, to give maybe a clearer idea on the French way to to the French approach. This is something that Macron, the French president, said in August of this year, end of August, where he said if France had not intervened in the Sahel, if our soldier had not fallen on the field in Africa, if Serval, then Barkhane, the two uh, military missions, had not been decided, we would not be talking today about Mali or Burkina Faso nor Niger. These states would no longer exist today within their territorial limits. I can tell you that with certainty. And I think that also shows why there needs to be a change in the in the, the perspective that France and the EU has on, on the Sahel. And looking ahead um, to 2024, I would say that um, if the EU takes seriously that shift of strategy, it could position itself as an actor, but it will have to face its internal uh, incoherence and it will have to face France's uh, policy and strategy in the region. Yeah, I, I think there's some pretty thought-provoking thoughts, if I can use that word, thought two or three times in a single <laughs> thoughtful sentence. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, on, on following up on, on, on what uh, Kazar was saying, well, I think you perhaps could distance itself from France, but I wouldn't. But uh, certainly I cannot imagine a EU policy without France. So I think that, sh that should also be always considered. So yeah. and, and, and I think that should also always be in the equation, because uh, even though the EU and other countries can distance itself from the French policy, I mean, France will always have its interests on the ground. So there will always need to be, you know, conversation with the French and never against the French so that things work uh, also within a sort of real political environment as the decisions within the EU. And also, uh, perhaps what would be interesting is that um, the EU should perhaps, um, I mean, as I already said before, be a bit more consistent when, when, when approaching these issues. Uh, um, the, we are certainly aware that it's, going, it's difficult for the EU to come up with a strategy to tackle, you know, coups and other um, and democratic backlash in different scenarios. But certainly the EU should protect itself against uh, being accused of, you know, dumbbell standards. And how does the EU do that? Well, then it needs to be more coherent, as already um because uh, has already said, and and the EU should also prioritize perhaps um, and and democracy more as a key component of its foreign policy. I mean, in Africa, what you see is that there's been a lot of investment, material investment in peace and security, for instance. But as I was saying before, perhaps there should be a question on whether the EU has actually done too little when it comes to you know supporting civil society and others. And 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 if that if if the EU is to achieve that, then I think that could be a, a sort of a starting point for a new policy towards Africa. Because as I already said before, I mean. The, it's, you have in other geographies like, you know, the case of Myanmar, the EU can adapt a, a strong, you know, response towards a, a particular country and a particular issue like the coup in Myanmar. So over yeah. there. I think that's a good way to wrap this conversation all up. And I hope that I know this wasn't meant to be a conversation to show you what's supposed to be happening, what, what needs to be occurring in 2024. But I think it's good to look a bit back and reflect on what the EU has done in 2023 and how those lessons we should take into the future, especially when, you know, contrast with other case studies and other, you know, current happenings. Because, you know, the world is not becoming a safer place, unfortunately. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, as we wrap up, before I let you guys go, we always do a fun personal question towards the end, um, which I did not prepare you guys for, so I hope you're ready. And I asked the same question last year during the last episode of the year. What do you want for Christmas? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
That's I a... use strategy towards clues. <laughs> to be a bit more creative there, Ricardo. No, no. As somebody who's taking off to Portugal in a few days' right. time, I'm sure your surfboard is getting all waxed si, up, si, right? Si, si. <laughs> I come from a surfing spot, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely considered to go into the water, so yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's a hard question. Um, I, I would say, yeah, more generally, uh, also, you know, New Year <laughs> wishes <laughs> or resolution um, I think uh, I would just like for people to be, you know, more respectful towards each other. Like, I would say more respect, more more consideration. Uh, yeah, I feel like, yeah, more peace around people. And yeah, that's... You're going to make me seem super immature because you both have these holistic answers, you know, <laughs> very mature, spousing good values and good wishes. I mean, hey, I, my girlfriend and I are just getting a new kitten, so I think that, no, I'll, I'll wish a good life okay. towards that thing. More specific, <laughs> I, I want to get, like, new earphones, <laughs> like, really quality ones. I, I got... Because I love music, so... Fantastic. No, no, yeah. I, I got these, because uh, I can't do earphones too long despite wearing them because my ears mm. are quite big and then they press on my ears and they hurt <laughs> after like an hour which is stupid i don't know why this happens and i don't want these huge ones because it look like a fool i mean if you have a recommendation i'm taking them <laughs> I, I, got these, uh, I got these earbuds like okay. they're like sennheiser and they were like quite expensive but the media marked at them 50 percent off because the box is damaged and i feel very blessed to have found them last week nice so that's my <laughs> earphone advice go to the media mark to buy the cheap one <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i guess that's not the best advice Okay. I'll take that any day. <laughs> well, I think we're almost running a bit over, but thank you, Ricardo, for coming on. Thank you, Kausar, for coming on. I, I, I'm hoping our, our guests had a great experience listening. And feel free, if you did enjoy and want to hear more of both of our guests, check out their work below in the description. Connect them on LinkedIn, maybe, if you have more questions following up. Um, and yeah, I think catch us in the new year as well, because I don't know what I'm doing for the next episode, but it should be fun. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much, um, Simon, for having us and uh, giving us the opportunity to talk today about this uh, important topic. And yes, feel free to to check uh, my work um, on my LinkedIn and connect with me if you have any further questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, likewise. I mean, it's, <laughs> been, it's been a pleasure. It's been an interesting experience for yeah. sure. So, yeah. yeah. Well, goodbye, everybody. Then in that case, have a great new year. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Happy New Year.